So our first reading is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Our second reading is Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I was uh, asked recently, uh, what was your most memorable time uh, when you were training to be a vicar? This is going back um, almost 10 years, and without a doubt, um, every time someone asked me that question, without a doubt, it was a two-hour Q&A with a vicar and a leader called Sandy Miller. Uh, Sandy was um, the vicar of HGB Church uh, for many, many years, almost like the first father figure uh, of this movement of churches, this network of planting churches uh, throughout the UK and beyond. And uh, We spent two years just asking for his input and his wisdom. It's just before we got ordained. And Uh, It wasn't so much what he said, although all of that was absolute gold. Uh, I was kind of furiously scribbling notes. The thing that really made uh, an impact on my life is just the way he was. Uh, The way that he gave just attention, made you feel valued, gave you dignity, and the way that he responded to everyone. Everyone was so attentive and in tune with what uh, he was speaking, this incredible clarity and joy about the way of Jesus and leadership and this contagious smile. I don't know if you've ever met anyone like that, that just in meeting them makes you want to kind of be a better person. Just in meeting them, for me, kind of made me want to draw closer to Jesus. You know, I was very pushy at that stage, not anymore. Um, uh, I was uh, very pushy, and I asked to come and see him where he lives. Um, I was like, I want to spend a day with you. I need to get more, I kind of need to kind of consume more of your, whatever you have. Um, and he was so gracious, and he allowed me to come. Uh, we went for a walk by the sea for the whole afternoon. I asked him so many questions about life and ministry and fatherhood and uh, all of the things that I could think of. I remember calling Hannah on the way home on the train, just saying, I just want to be like him when I grow up. And one of the things that uh, he said to me as I was asking him questions, I was talking about like, how do I thrive in the long run in ministry, in my job, in my calling, my vocation? How do I kind of maintain this life where I feel like I'm flourishing and not under the weight and pressure of it all? And uh, what's your secret? Sandy, like, what's your secret to a fruitful, lifelong, faith-filled ministry? And he said this, every morning when I wake up, I pause and I pray a simple prayer. 
Come, Holy Spirit. Everything else that I do flows from there. Come, Holy Spirit. You may have heard that phrase as you've been coming here. We say it a decent amount. And that phrase may be the sound of your prayer life. It may even be the very thing that you say as you wake each morning, a continuous prayer of asking the Spirit to lead and to guide you, to fill you and to nourish you throughout your day. You might hear that phrase, and you do hear it here fairly often, and you might just think, I don't even know what that means. Like, what, what is meant when you say those phrases? You might just be completely unsure. You may even be nervous when we start to pray like that. And you might even hear this phrase and think, it's good for you, John, but hey, that's not really my thing. Well, because of all of those responses uh, and more reasons, I'm sure, that we hold in this room, that is why I want to spend the next few weeks speaking into how to live a life in the Spirit how to live a spirit-empowered, life-energizing, spirit-led life in the world today. I believe that what each of us need as we try and follow Jesus on our various stages of our journey with him in the challenging moment in culture and history that we find ourselves in, I believe that there is a greater need for a clearer awareness and confidence of the move of the Spirit in us and around us. We need to move powerfully and with uh, grace and with peace into the world around us. And for that, we need a move of the Spirit within us. And so, uh, before we get into what some of that might look like for all of us, why don't we start here? Who is the Holy Spirit and what is the Spirit for? Uh, As Emily just read, in the second sentence of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we are introduced to the Holy Spirit. This is not like a new church idea. From the very creation of the cosmos, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Uh, The Hebrew word, um, I said Hebe, Hebrew uh, word translated to spirit is ruach. Um, I think that's how you say it, um, it's very breathy. Um, uh, There are a few different ways to translate ruach uh, in uh, the Hebrew, but they all are linked to this same idea that it's about a life force or an energy. For example, there is an invisible energy that makes the clouds move and the trees sway, and we call that energy wind. But in Hebrew, that word is ruach. And then, for example, you just do this with me, just to, um, uh, why not? Um, Just take a nice big breath in, in through the nostrils. Do you feel kind of that thing entering your chest, kind of like, almost like you're being energized, like the thing that you need is coming into your body? Well, we call that breath. It powers our body. Without breath, our body does not work. We will not last very long. Well, the word for breath in Hebrew is ruach. Just as the wind is powerful, God's spirit is powerful. Just as breath sustains us, God's spirit sustains all of life. 
And so in Genesis, as we kind of move through the story after that first sentence, uh, the Ruach of God, the Spirit of God, is giving energy to created order as the land and the seas and the animal kingdom are all created and have their being. And then that same Ruach, that same life force energy is breathed into Adam and Eve. That life force enters humanity, his presence in his creation. And so Ruach is used throughout all of scripture, yes, to describe the power of the wind and the breath in our lungs, but it's also used to describe God's personal presence. God's presence that empowers God's people to express the life and energy of God to the world around them. And we see that as we go through, and here's like an overview of the Old Testament in 12 seconds. Joseph of Technicolor Dreamcoat fame is empowered by the spirit with a prophetic gift of interpreting dreams. Bezalel, one of the temple leaders, the first like worship leader, is empowered by the spirit with a creative force as he writes songs and produces R and Esther, a young Jewish woman who spoke truth to power and fought against the injustices of genocide, was empowered by the spirit with a fearless courage. And so then as we get into the more prophetic literature and all of this is in our Bible overview that we did last term, I encourage you to check it out. Uh, Then the spirit is given to the prophets of Israel to speak about the concerns of God. And one of those prophets is Ezekiel. And in chapter 37 of Ezekiel, we have this famous passage that might be familiar to some of you. This kind of prophetic image of God breathing life back into dead, dry, weary bones speaking yes to Israel in that moment, but also prophetically into the future where followers of Jesus, that through the life, the death, and the resurrection, that we will receive the same spirit in a new way in his creation, which is why we read. I was thinking about acknowledging it, now I have. Um, We... Uh, Ezekiel, come on, back in the room. Ezekiel 37. Uh, um, We will know that, you will know that I am Lord when I open your graves and bring you up out of them. Sound familiar? I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And so holding that prophetic image with the reality of the resurrected Jesus who comes out of the grave, what's the first thing uh, that Jesus does and says to his disciples and followers? He says this, John 20, 22, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He's making an explicit link back to the garden and the creation story. Jesus is saying in Genesis, the Spirit of God is the energizing life force behind all things. And now, as followers of Jesus, you are being filled with the same energizing life force and spirit to be my disciples, to follow me. In Acts and Pentecost, we see the birth of the church where where God's people are empowered by the Spirit to go to all the ends of creation. You see, the Holy Spirit empowers us into a life with Jesus. Think of of an airplane at the beginning of a runway. It has the potential to fly, Like it's got all of the aerodynamics, it's got the engine, it's got the wheels to kind of get enough speed. But until the engines roar, 
until there is power in those engines. It's never going to get enough speed to get up and start to do the thing that it was created for. You see, the Holy Spirit is the fuel and the power that makes your life move, that gives power and energy to your adventure as you walk along the way of Jesus. Or to use the language of Ezekiel, the Spirit breathes life into your very bones in order that you might participate in the concerns of God. So who the Holy Spirit? And then what is the Holy Spirit for? Well, I'm going to give you three things that I think primarily the Holy Spirit is for. First of all, the Holy Spirit enables us to encounter the presence of God. You see, it is through the Spirit that God is revealed as we read Scripture, as we, read, um, as we pray. It's by the Spirit that we are adopted into the family of God, that we discover intimacy and relationship with him. It's the Spirit that is the great counselor and comforter that moves us into the presence of God. Uh, secondly, it should come up behind me here, is transformation. Uh, the Spirit helps us to encounter God, but it also leads to our transformation. You see, as we, just, as we encounter God through his word and through his parent, through his parent I'm trying to say presence, I'm, it's coming out as presence. Um, uh, no parents, shouldn't have stopped. Um, as we encounter God, our hearts are purified and our minds are renewed. You are given this like new status in life to become living temples and statues, homes, hosts of his presence. That changes us, changes our desires, changes our motivations, it changes our thought life, it changes our actions. And then thirdly, the Spirit is give, uh, gives gifts. Uh, the New Testament describes in a few places the gifts of the Spirit. They are, I would describe, the particular expressions of God's personal presence at work in people's lives. The particular expression of God at work in you. Things like wisdom and words of knowledge, insight into things of the kingdom like poetry and uh, poetry, prophecy, prayer, I can't read this morning, in heavenly languages like tongues and interpretation of that speech, gifts of healing, of faith, of organizational leadership, and many other things uh, and more. These gifts are to given uh, for two reasons. I think this is something that we get wrong. So often we think like, oh, it's like I need these gifts. The gifts of the Spirit are given so that you can give them away. Primarily, the gifts of the Spirit are given to build up the church and to bless the world around you, to encourage one another, to champion one another on, uh, to, to speak life, that energizing life force into one another, and then to do that for the world around us, to seek the healing and renewal of our city and beyond. So, before we move on, uh, before we move on and to think, okay, well then what does this mean for us? What does this mean for me today? I'd love us just to pause. And we're going to pray a simple prayer. A simple yet profound prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. Why don't we just take a moment, we'll close our eyes. Where we need a fresh encounter with you, God. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, where we long for transformation in your name, 
Come, Holy Spirit. And where we need the gift of your presence, God, at work in us and around us. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, I think there are loads of things that I could say at this point, and um, we're going to spend a couple of weeks looking at some of the options that we've got from this launch pad, and hey, we're probably going to spend the next sort of 25 years or so dwelling uh, on the realities of what it means for us to be uh, people who host the presence of God. But uh, for today, I want to make an observation from our reading in Luke this scene might be familiar to you, this scene of two sisters, kind of two approaches, uh, kind of opposing responses to a situation with Jesus. And uh, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, but her sister Martha is running around. She's busy. She's hurried. She's distracted. She's working hard to prove her worth. She's worried about what other people are doing. She's probably worried about what other people are thinking, especially of her and her activity. She's judging her sister, and she's complaining to Jesus, saying, why do you not care about me and my stuff? Does that sound familiar? Or is that just me? Listen to Jesus' response. Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. You're running around, wondering whether I care or not, wondering what other people are doing, wondering what you should be doing, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. You see, Mary has chosen a life of devotion. And to that, Jesus says, is the only thing that's needed. A life lived at the feet of Jesus is the only thing that Jesus says is needed for Martha. You see, we are not given a blueprint or like a map uh, to say, this is exactly how to live your life. These are the decisions to make. Uh, This is the people to do it with. This is the place to live. Rather, we are given a guide in the Holy Spirit. And where the Spirit leads us and guides us to is into devotion at the feet of of Jesus. A life of devotion, walking the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus. And I think here, and just been reflecting on this for the last month or so, I think here we are being called, as individuals, you are being called, uh, and we are being called as a church to a greater devotion to Jesus. I think for some of us, it's the first time really devoting your life to the way of Jesus. For some of us, it's a redevotion into the things of Jesus to participate in the concerns of God. Before our busyness, our distraction, our worrying about what other people are doing, saying, thinking, our worrying about our worth and our proving ourselves in the world, called to sit simply at the feet of Jesus. 
And this is something that we've been thinking about as a leadership team. It really is the heart behind uh, why we've kind of changed some of our evening services for now. Uh, and we're having extended time of worship. And on Thursday night, we had our worship night here again. And we had our prayer room. It's kind of all kind of been behind this sense that we think that we are being called into a greater devotion to Jesus because we want to see the things of his kingdom come to be in our city, in our world, in our lives that it starts at the feet of Jesus. And so for today, I'd love to just offer three C's to a life of devotion with Jesus. First of all, that it starts in confession. James 5.17 says this, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, as I say that, some of you are like, oh my gosh, I love confession. Just give me some more. Oh, John, I've been waiting for this moment for my whole, I don't know where this person's come from. Um, Basically, you're keen. Uh, uh, But for others of us, and I imagine this is maybe more, some of you are feeling uncomfortable. Oh gosh, we're going to talk about confession. We're going to talk about sin and all the bad stuff. I think the reason that we can get uncomfortable is probably because of this. We've lost an understanding that confession is one of the greatest kindnesses God has ever shown us. It is one of the greatest kindnesses that God has ever shown us. You know, one of the challenges of living a life of faith is simply this, trusting the God that we already believe in putting our trust in a God that we believe exists. And that has always been our story. Going back right to Genesis again, we see in humanity Adam and Eve choosing to make themselves the ultimate authority over good and evil, turning in on themselves, a life turned in on themselves and away from God's goodwill for their lives. That is what the Bible describes as sin. And the instinctive human response when sin is exposed and that we see in Adam and Eve is to run away and hide. We feel shame. We feel guilt. We feel bad. And that is where our misunderstanding of God's grace comes in. You see, the issue with sin is not uh, that God has this very strict moral code uh, that if you step even just a tiny bit out of line uh, with his moral compass, well, then that's the end for you. Like, God demands everything. No, the issue with sin in that taking our lives into our own hands, orientating our lives around ourselves, the issue is that sin inhibits us from doing the thing that we were created to do, and that's to love, and to love well in freedom and in peace. You cannot love when your primary ambition, your primary concern is focused on you, for love gives itself away. The creation account ends with this depressing scene of Adam and Eve leaving the garden, they're walking east, but here is the wild thing that happens. What, he, what God doesn't do after Adam and Eve kind of um, fail in the garden and sin enters the world, he doesn't lower his standards for holiness. The biblical story is not one of a compromising God. 
Rather, it is a story of a pursuing God who out of his great love for his creation is calling us, wooing us back into intimacy with him. The pursuit of his people, God's pursuit of you, ultimately leads Jesus to the cross where he dies for your sins, demolishes your separation from God and casts a verdict of freedom over your life. That is not something you can lose. It is finished, he cries, and access to God's presence is no longer restricted. So therefore, in our confession of our need for a saviour, we find healing and hope in the presence of God. You see, confession is an invitation to return to intimacy with God. God has dealt with your problem by becoming the solution himself. This is his great compassion towards us. That word compassion means to co-suffer. God is not surprised by your mistakes. He longs to draw you in and alongside himself to lead you into a life of unburdened freedom. See, that is a God who is worthy of trust. Jesus is a healer, yes, but he is the kind of doctor that has dealt with and overcome the same disease that we are facing. It's like he's an oncologist, that he himself has suffered with lung cancer, and more than that, he's donated a lung for your transplant. Tyler Staten says it like this, Jesus is a doctor with experiential compassion, that's co-suffering, for what you're going through, and a wounded body for a battle with the same symptoms you face. This is a profoundly kind invitation back into intimacy with God, who deeply cares for you, who deeply cares for all of you, wants to draw near to you in your weakness, is not impressed with your limited strength, but wants the real you, the you that you are sometimes scared to admit to others, sometimes even scared to admit to yourself, beneath the you that you present to everyone else. You see, God is deeply compassionate, unhurried, rich in love, and he cares for your wounds and wants to bring you healing. I I am not the man that I always long to be. I'm not the husband, the father, the friend, or even the leader. Hey, St. Mary's, I sometimes make mistakes. Audible gasp in the room for the recording. You know, I'm not always the man that I long to be. I get frustrated too easily. I judge too quickly. I'm selfish too readily. I cave inwardly and orient my life around myself. I need forgiveness, healing, and transformation. I think one of the common misconceptions is this. Is it's not that those who are mature and full of the Spirit are like somehow in less need of getting themselves right with God. It's that they have come to a place where they have realized they are utterly dependent on him for everything that matters in life. So a life of devotion starts in confession with this simple daily prayer, Lord, I need you. Come, Holy Spirit. That is the place where you return to intimacy. So let me ask you a provocative question. Does your life suffocate the flow of the Spirit within you? That life-giving air and breath? Or does your life 
allow the energizing life force of his spirit to breathe into your lungs and your dry and your weary bones to lead and to guide you. There is an invitation from a kind and generous God who longs for your freedom. And so how will you respond to that invitation? Second C, and these two are a lot quicker. Consecrate. First we confess and then we are consecrated. In biblical terms, to consecrate is to be singly devoted and set apart for the worship and service of God. You see, one of the roles that the Spirit plays is that as you walk in intimacy with God, the Spirit reminds you of your position that you already have. You are royal, you are holy, you are an adopted child of God. Um, as you know, in uh, a couple of weeks, uh, the king, Prince Charles, um, or technically king now, um, uh, he will be coronated, uh, and there'll be no doubt about his position. Um, and so in between all of the parades and the Victoria sponge cakes and the inevitable references to Paddington and Lionel Richie, um, in, in and amongst all of that, in a couple of weekends' time, there is a part of the coronation service at Westminster Abbey where the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, will be leading it. Uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury will use this special oil as part of this kind of like special eagle thing. I've got a picture of it uh, so you can um, see what I'm talking about. There's this special oil um, and this special spoon, 500-year-old spoon at the bottom there uh, that was first used on King Charles II, interestingly enough. Um, uh, And this is the spoon that holds the consecrating oil. And there'll be a moment where um, uh, Archbishop Justin Welby will lay his, he'll anoint his head with oil and he'll lay his hands on him and he will pray a prayer of consecration over the king. It's a specific prayer to say that he has been especially set apart for his unique role as the king of this nation. (coughs) The same is true for you as followers of Jesus. You, as you follow the way of Jesus, have received a consecrating seal of the Holy Spirit. Peter, making the same point, uh, says this, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation called out of darkness and into his light. This is the language of consecration that you have been set apart, made holy by a generous God. Notice the language that you have been called out, but then into light. You have been made holy for a reason. A life of devotion is to be consecrated into the activity and concerns of God, to be a witness to his kingdom, to host his love, his joy, his peace, and to be a purveyor of his hope. This is your true and proper act of worship. It is not a role that you play It's not something that you achieve. It's simply who you are. Once you confess your sin, you are then consecrated into this new identity in God's family. No feeling of inadequacy can take that away. No shame can ever taint it. No fear can ever break it. You have been consecrated so that the energizing life force of the Spirit can reaffirm that Spirit within you that you are a chosen people. You are God's own special 
possession. Basically, God loves you. He loves you. He loves you. This is the invitation into intimacy and then into a life of freedom. So you are consecrated and therefore you can now contend for the things of his kingdom. To contend simply means to strive or to fight for a cause. So if if consecration is about your status, that you've been made royal and holy, set apart, well then contending is about your activity. It's what you do in light of who you already are. As you are drawn into intimacy, you are caught up into the concerns of God. So your thoughts and your longings, your desires, they start to shift to be more in line with God's heart for the world. Let me ask you, like, do you ever get that like, um, gut feeling about something? Like you see something and you think to yourself, that's just not right. The way that that's happening, the way that that's unfolding, the way that those people are being treated, it's just not right. Or do you look at the world and think there must be a better way? Or do you have a vision of something that is not yet but could be? Or where your God-infused gut feelings and the energizing life force of the spirit collide, that's where the kingdom of God advances. See, to contend is to refuse to live a life of indifference. Would we be a community, would we be a church that refuses to live a life of indifference in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our friendships? Allowing a devotion to Jesus and the indwelling of his spirit to be the flame of passion within us, caring for the poor and the oppressed, praying for the sick, fighting against injustice, creating compelling art, starting purposeful businesses, being a light to your colleagues and your friends and your family, and this is the big one, resisting escapism and distraction to live a life of presence filled with a holy ambition to see God's kingdom come in Jesus' name. Amen. And so... The Spirit of God leads us into a life of devotion. Let me finish with this. To confess, to bring yourself, to get right with God, you need the energizing life force of his grace. To see and encounter the kindness and love of God as he welcomes you into intimacy with him. To be consecrated You need the energizing life force of his holiness to inhabit you as you are set apart as a living witness and to contend. You need the energizing life force of his power to partner with the things of God and his kingdom to seek renewal, hope, healing, justice, mercy, peace in you and the world around you. You are invited to pray that prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. And my desire for my life and my longing for your life is that as we seek to become more like Jesus, as we seek to live in more freedom and peace and joy and love, that as we start each day with that simple yet profound prayer, come, Holy Spirit, the world would never be the same again.